we've noticed that religion is a hot topic as it relates to LGBTQ people. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in Washington, D.C. And so now the task force is saying, what can we do to be on the Hill, to work with the administration, to work with agencies to say, this this is not a weapon that you can use against us, but we want to show you how you should treat everyone. While some of the most toxic anti-gay lawmaking has been happening at the state and local levels, Washington is not immune from some really ugly initiatives. And like always, religion gets dragged into it every time. A majority of Americans, including people of faith, are solidly behind equal rights and dignity for their LGBTQ neighbors. Among the voices bringing that message to Capitol Hill are those of John Cohen, Director of Community Mobilization at Keshet, Darcy Hirsch, Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance, and Alan Morris, Policy Advisor at the National LGBTQ Task Force. They're all with me on this week's show to evaluate both the dangers and the progress that's being made. To think that you can only be one racial identity with one particular spiritual movement is so far from human reality. And, and yeah. that is 100% what we're trying to, to bring that consciousness to our communities. Andalusia Lopez Reverado is founder and executive director of Jutina y Co. Nurturing Latin Jewish community, identity, leadership, and resiliency via cohort experiences, community storytelling, and culturally sustaining learning resources and workshops. On this week's show, we'll take a look at the opportunities that come with organizing at this vibrant intersection and the values and priorities that come into play. We are growing State of Belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation of State of Belief podcasts I want to make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us in that work at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guests. John Cohen is Director of Community Mobilization at Keshet, which works for the full equality of all LGBTQ Jews and their families in Jewish life. John's work organizing diverse communities through an intersectional Jewish lens is inspired by the wisdom and experiences he has gained as a gay Mexican Jew. Alan Morris is policy advisor and government affairs gladiator at the National LGBTQ Task Force. A Texas native, Alan has over a decade of broad-based public policy, immigration, criminal, and human rights experiences across legal, corporate, government, and nonprofit sectors. 
And of course, my colleague, Darcy Hirsch, who is an attorney and has held leadership positions in government relations and public affairs at several leading organizations, and today serves as the very busy Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance. Welcome, all three of you, to The State of Belief. Hey, Paul. Thank you so much. We are thrilled. Listen, I want to start with um, some introductions. We're going to assume that people know what Interfaith Alliance is. So, Darcy, you're you're going to have to take a seat for a moment. But I do want to get give John a chance to talk about Keshet. Keshet is such a close partner of Interfaith Alliance. Tell our listeners a little bit about Keshet, um, how it was founded, and what the mission is today, and why it's so crucial. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, So Kesha has been around for a little bit over 20 years. It started as a Boston-based local organization for queer Jewish people to have a place to gather, get to know one another, community build. As time has gone on and the country has changed over the last two or so decades, uh, Kesha has evolved along with it. So at this time, we have three main program areas. Our program areas are education and training work, where we work with Jewish organizations and institutions to help them on their journeys of being places where queer Jews feel like they belong, whether that is gender neutral bathrooms, making sure that pronouns are on name tags or any kind of competency training for LGBTQ issues that they need. We also have youth programming, and that looks like virtual and in-person spaces for queer Jewish youth to gather, ages 13 to 24, to be in affirming spaces where they can take on leadership opportunities and grow and ask questions and be with their own peers. And then the work that I do and the work that we are here to talk about is our community mobilization work, which is our advocacy and organizing work. And we really focus on turning out the Jewish community for LGBTQ rights at the state and federal level. And it's one of the things that we partner with the Interfaith Alliance so closely on. And it really is both bringing a Jewish perspective to LGBTQ rights and saying that it is not despite our faith that we support LGBTQ non-discrimination, but it's actually a piece of our faith and a core value, a core moral that all people should be treated with respect and dignity. And then the other piece of that is really acting as a bridge between the secular LGBTQ advocacy communities and also the pro-LGBTQ Jewish community, where we are able to bring that lens to the work that we do and to help build um, the communities and the connections between the two. That is so important. And and this is such a theme for us. It's like, it's not like religion versus LGBTQ rights. That's actually completely a false narrative. In fact, the majority of religious traditions almost across the board support LGBTQ equality. So this, this old narrative has stuck around too long. And I appreciate the work that Keshet is doing. Alan, tell me about your, first of all, a gladiator. Not too many people have that in their business card, but there it is for Alan. (laughs) Tell tell me about the, obviously, the National LGBTQ Task Force, a hugely important organization, but a little bit also about how you enter into that space and in this conversation about religion. Yes. um, Thank you so much, Paul. So 
this is the task force 50th anniversary. And I think like something that we've been doing from the very beginning is making sure that the, that the faith piece is there and that people understand that their religion is only one part of them and just making sure that there is an intersection of what that looks like for all people. Um, and, you know, the task force fights to advance liberation, equity, and just making sure that people can be themselves. Like our, you know, slogan is be you. Um, and something that I've noticed, you know, working here, and granted, I've only been here for about four months, um, and I come from the immigrant rights movement, is we are truly looking to ensure that relationships like what we have with Interfaith Alliance are at the forefront of what we're talking about. You know what I'm saying? I think over the last you know few years, we've noticed that religion is a hot topic as it relates to LGBTQ people. And so now the task force is saying, what can we do to be on the Hill, to work with the administration, to work with agencies to say, this this is not a weapon that you can use against us, but we want to show you how you should treat everyone, how everyone should be treated as their neighbor, how you should treat everyone the way that you want to be treated. Um, and it's just such a blessing to, you know, also work so closely with Darcy on these various issues and having this, you know, platform to be able to speak more into people um, and not just necessarily from a religious point of view or looking at religion, but just humanizing everyone. Yeah, I love that slogan, be you. I mean, be you and be treated with full respect for the you who you are by our laws, by the rest of the, the country. Um, these are foundational. 50 years is a long time for an LGBTQ organization. Congratulations. That is fantastic Thank Thank and so important. Darcy, you come out of a lot of different experiences in advocacy. You went to law school. You went to divinity school. You come out of this in so many different ways. I'm just curious. You know, this is I won't assume for John or Alan, but for myself, I come at this. It's very personal as a gay man with a family who's, you know, trying to make a life and, and thrive in America. For you, this is actually part of a broad mission. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I've just admired so much the way you come at this work around LGBTQ rights as part of a wider movement for equality in America. So I wanted just to welcome you to the show as well and, and talk a little bit about how you view this work in concert with so much of the other great work you're doing at Interfaith Alliance. Thank you so much, Paul. You know, I really view myself as a civil rights activist and a person of faith, and I bring my full self to, to my work, to my daily experiences, to how I build my relationships and how I talk about equity and equality. And it's really been so powerful for me at Interfaith Alliance to, to bring all of these factors to my to my work and to say that I am here, I'm here as a person of faith. I'm a person that believes in, in equity. And here I am with, with my partners, standing up with Alan, standing up with John, walking through the halls of Congress, talking to Republicans, to Democrats, and saying that we as a community will not stand for discrimination under, under the guise of religious freedom or, or anything. And, mm. and, um, I feel really strongly about it and I'm just so glad that, that we can be here today to, to do this work and show up as our true selves. I really appreciate it. I want to mention that we are showing up um, together on this show as a shutdown looms. Basically, a few members of Congress are holding the entire process hostage. 
part of what we're going to be doing right after this show, actually, listeners, I want you to know this, like we're not just talk, we're also action. We're going to be going on the Hill and talking to various representatives because people seem to be using this moment of budget as an opportunity to stealth put in anti-LGBTQ pieces of legislation that don't get discussed, that, you know, can't be out in the open. Darcy, do I have that basically right? Yeah. So as as we're recording this, we are four days away from a government shutdown. And essentially, certain, certain legislators are holding our federal budget hostage. And for those listeners that aren't familiar with the appropriations process, this budget, these are the funds that keep our federal programs going from year to year. It funds our defense. It funds uh, SNAP and, and, and other benefits for people in need. It funds our federal workers and contractors. You think about the entire DC region is is full of of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are working for the federal government, who are supporting their families through these salaries, and who are not going to get a paycheck or going to be able to work if if the federal government shuts down. And there are federal workers all around the country. Um, And so this is a significant, significant issue. And there's really, um, you know, kind of a, a logjam right now about the federal budget moving forward. And there's a few factors, you know, it's about it's about how much money uh, Republicans and Democrats can agree that they want to spend on defense and on social services. But at the same time, there are over 45 anti-LGBTQ amendments attached to the appropriations bills that would strip life-saving health care for trans individuals. It would ban pride flags at federal institutions. It would reduce the salaries of of trans federal workers. I mean, it's really unbelievable um, these these items that are that are being part of this whole hostage taking plan. Um, there's also several amendments that would prohibit abortion. Um, you know, there's all kinds of kind of these um, cultural war issues that are being included in the federal appropriations process that are just so unheard of and I would say even mean-spirited um, when when our government and our community members need need these funds to to do their jobs and to to let the country move forward. Um, and so by the time you hear this, we will either be in a full government shutdown or we will have uh, been able to negotiate a continuing resolution that will fund the government for 45 days. So regardless of what happens this week, this battle will continue for the next several months. And that's why it's so important that we continue to speak out. Um, Alan, John, do do you want to add more specifics? Yeah. John, why don't you uh, go ahead and, and, you know, talk about this and, and maybe you can just like, what would you say? um, And I'll, I'll single out, this is not, this is largely being driven by a Christian nationalist agenda, but there can be conservative people of all different religions who are buying into this. What would you like to say um, specifically to a Jewish um, congressperson who is like, oh, you know what? I think I am going to insert a trans writer. How do you, I'm curious because you're, you're, you work very closely with the Jewish community. What can you say to, um, to, you know, more conservative Jewish people out there that this is, you know, this is a terrible way for you to focus your political clout and your political energy. Yeah. Um, I think there are two things I would say to that. One is that 
Fortunately, um, according to the most recent PRRI study that um, 85% of American Jews support LGBTQ non-discrimination. So the first thing I would say to that politician who is attempting to use Judaism for anti-LGBTQ policy is that um, it is not the way that the Jewish American community feels and they would be acting very much in the extreme minority. Um, LGBTQ non-discrimination is one of the issues that Jews very, very much agree on when you think about the majority. And so I would remind them of that. I would also share that very often, and as you said, Paul, the things that are happening right now that are anti-LGBTQ and being pushed forward by a Christian nationalist agenda is a slippery slope that will also impact Jewish communities. We have seen that when religion is used to discriminate against LGBTQ people, that very often the next step is to discriminate against Jewish people. Um, I'm thinking of the case of the Catholic Social Services Agency in Philadelphia that wouldn't adopt children to queer couples or to Jewish couples, and that case made its way to the Supreme Court. And so I think that it would just be a reminder that if you are not part of this white, straight, Christian, national majority, that whether that makes you Jewish, Muslim, queer, trans, um, you could be next on the chopping block. And so this really is everyone's fight. And we mm. all need to be in it together, even if we may not feel like we are being um, targeted at this exact moment. Because as we've seen historically, there it doesn't just stop this kind of discrimination, this kind of attacks on people's identities and lived experiences. It just continues to snowball and to grow. Right. I mean, we, we, we already see that in playbooks across the country. This is a very specific thing we're talking about. We can be shocked and we can be dismayed, but we can't be surprised because of the way that basically LGBT lives have been weaponized uh, in this current political moment. And so for whatever reason, largely, I would say it's GOP members have um, begun to feel like, OK, maybe this is a winning issue for us. How have you and the National Task Force begun to think about this a little bit more as part of a national program to kind of make, um, especially I would say trans lives, a political ball to be whacked around rather than real lives who's, who, that, that um, are precious and need to be, um, you know, need to thrive just like every other life. Yeah, I mean, and this this really goes back to the conversation or my statement earlier about making sure that everyone humanizes our community. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think we've worked on both sides of the aisle. And yes, this is primarily a GOP issue. However, Democrats can also often fall on the wrong side of history. Democrats can often be, you know, as hurtful as a Republican um, member. And, I, you know, I think when we look at how trans people are being, you know, I really hate to use the word, but crucified in so many different ways, it is very, you know, hurtful because oftentimes we do feel like our backs are up against the wall, but yet we're, we're still swinging, right? We often see the various issues happening right in front of us, but if we don't have a member 
on both sides of the aisle that's willing to come in and say, look, this is not the way to do it. We need to settle our differences. We need to look at what's happening. Like I had a conversation with my team yesterday and I was just telling them like, we could be in a government shutdown next week. One of my colleagues called me this morning and told me that they overheard a federal worker discussing what they're going to do with their paycheck in a grocery store last night. That's impactful. Like how can our members be in a grocery store listening to someone talk about, talk with their mother or father and say, I don't know what to buy because I may not have money next week. That's how important this issue is where we need to put people over politics. And that's not what members are doing. You know what I'm saying? Members see politics. Members see what is going to get me the most money. What can I campaign on? What can I spew hate on? And mm. it is us. It is mm. us. It is it is immigration. It is this so-called wokeism that everyone wants to talk about. It's large ticket items where there's no rooted issue there. There's no problem there. And statistics show that there's no problem there, but they're making it up. It is all manufactured, just like the latest case in the Supreme Court. The 303 cre creative case was made up and it got to the highest court of the land, all because someone spewed hate and they uh, wanted yeah. to do things. And I actually think that's a really good example because, Darcy, you, you really helped me see that part of the power and the like the nefarious power of that is that there was no real case and so there could be no people who people could you know empathize with and you know that i think what we're you know i just i really appreciate all the comments because this is it really is about humanizing budgets are about humans ultimately these are humans affected and when we talk about whether we're talking about the lgbtq writers which are you know really really attacking the lgbtq community. But more broadly, budgets are about humans and about people, you know, having to decide their paycheck and all that kind of thing. Darcy, how does this, um, how do you imagine this moment fitting into kind of as we move into uh, what will be a, um, has already proved to be a very taxing and difficult 2024 election. This is not a partisan question. This is actually like, how do we, how do we highlight issues uh, at the intersection of religion and democracy that do humanize people and don't allow religion to be used as a, as a bludgeon uh, and, and, and as a way to discriminate against people? How do you see this fitting into a broader pattern? And I'd like to, for everyone to talk about, like, what are messages that you're beginning to think about that, that could be effective as people begin to imagine, like, what's the kind of a country we want to live in going forward? And how can we, you know, create messages that are welcoming to people and compelling and non-discriminatory? Darcy, what do you, what, how do you see this fitting into a broader uh, scope of work as well, we go forward. Thank you for that question. It fits right in. I, first, I actually I want to say I was just thinking about the humanity that we are all speaking about around the budget. A lot of faith activists talk about the budget as a moral document, right? This is this is the document that defines who we are as a country. Who do we want to support? How are we going to support people? Welcome them, making making them feel. Um, cherished, and so that I, I do want to think about that when we when we talk about our messaging around around this budget. It, it is a moral document, and it puts down our priorities for the year as a country. 
you know, looking forward into the election, um, this is all part of a Christian nationalist playbook. And if we allow things like anti-trans health care writers to be included in the budget, we are normalizing and accepting this kind of um, discrimination and this kind of rhetoric. And so I would ask listeners, you know, as they're as they're hearing, you know, school board um, school board candidates, local and state electoral candidates thinking about the presidential election and the congressional election. What are the candidates talking about? How are they talking about the LGBTQ community? How are they talking about minority faiths? How are they talking about books and curriculum? It's all connected. How are they talking about reproductive rights? We need to keep keep our ears um, out, or put, as I would say to my kids, put your listening ears on and think about what are the candidates talking about? It's not okay. You know, I, I know, uh, you know, some people have say, well, it's okay. You know, I, I don't mind what they're doing on this issue because they're okay on this other issue. It's all connected. And if, and if we're not tracking it, if we're not voting with our morals, um, and, and really lifting up the voices of communities that are, that are being discriminated against and, and showing our candidates, showing our elected officials, who we are and what we care about, um, then then we have a lot to be concerned about in the election. John, tell me a little bit about how you understand this moment that we're in more broadly um, for the Jewish community. I mean, you, you're at the intersection of three identities that are, uh, you know, can, could feel very threatened at this moment. I mean, rising anti-Semitism, terrible anti-immigration um, rhetoric happening and policies and uh, LGBTQ rights. How do you understand how those th- things fit together? And and how do you imagine um, an effective campaign to um, convince people that actually we're better when we're all together? Uh, and um, so wh- what are you thinking right now? Yeah, Paul. Well, one thing that I'm always thinking is what you just said is that we really are better when we're all together. Um, And so much of what's happening politically right now is being done intentionally to prevent us from being together. It seems like if everybody's identities are being attacked, that naturally you are going to spend time in your own community trying to fix it. And that can make it so it's challenging to see what's going on in the community right next to you. So I actually think that intersectional identities and being in community with people who have different identities with you is the answer, because then you're able to see the broader picture, the larger picture. And with what Darcy just shared about thinking about what politicians and news medias are sharing, I also think it's really important to look at how they are sharing it. Because if the way that the information is coming out is to inspire fear or inspire hate or to create anger, that's going to lead to a very different outcome than if the message is trying to inspire hope, trying to inspire fairness, trying to inspire dignity and community. And so I think that if the politicians or the news that you're listening to is causing you to feel fear and anger that there's a reason why those politicians and those news agencies are using that tactic. They are intentional in their language and they are companies that are profiting off of the anger and the fear. And so my advice and my hope is that we are becoming more and more aware of that 
and we are able to think more critically about the messages that we are receiving beyond just the what am I hearing, but the how am I hearing it, and why is it being delivered to me in this way? Right. I think that's so smart. And just to your, you know, your point, it, you know, part of what you know, we talk about with interfaith advocacy is like interfaith advocacy has an end, but the process itself is its own benefit because through interfaith advocacy, you learn about other experiences that you might not appreciate. I, d- I may not understand what a sick American is going through. Through interfaith advocacy, I could say, "Oh, wow, okay, that is actually a that that your your struggle there is going to be my struggle because now I know about it and I'm in community with you and 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 let me tell you a few things that I'm going through and invite you to be in community with me and this idea of it's not a zero sum game. That's I think what is being pushed upon us is that it's either us or them. I mean, that is really like you know if you had to like." If you had to just encapsulate like Trump's uh, playbook, it's totally it's us versus them. And if they win, we're gone, which is like, you know, just, you know, it's really, really a um, obviously inspires fear, hatred, desperation and and terrible results. Alan, how are you seeing all of this from your vantage point? And Mm -hmm. and what are some messages that you are hoping that um, that all of us would begin to think about and and employ uh, as we go forward into 2024? Um, Well, I I definitely want to echo everything Darcy and John have, you know, what they're saying. It's, It's very true. And I mean, even with my own family, I'm from Texas and we're close to the Texas Louisiana border. So I get the calls all the time. I come from a very re- religious family where people are just afraid and scared. They're not know, you know, and they don't know what's going on. Uh, and something that really resonates with me all the time is when I'm having those conversations, you know, is how do I come in in my role to make sure that I disavow that hate and that rhetoric? Like, how do I turn what we're seeing you know who and i'm and i'm not going to say his name i'll just say his number four or five do like how do i turn that over and say no actually this is what's going on these are the facts and what they're saying is not true um i'm i'm it's really hard because honestly paul it's hard to keep up it is hard to keep Mm. up with so much disinformation and misinformation Mm. it's hard Mm. to say what can we tackle in that moment? As soon as we try to pour credence in, into one thing, something else comes out. But one thing I, I will say is you really have to examine yourself and you really have to say, if this, if if I'm going to approach this from a holistic approach, I want to make sure that the same way I want to be treated, I want to look at my neighbor and say, I want them to be treated with the same love and respect. It's equity. It's, it's, mm. It's making sure that when I hear certain things that I don't let that come in, you know, but then also that if I have a personal story that I feel that I need someone to hear that I reach out to my Congress member, I write them a letter. I say, hey, this is what's going on. If I'm a parent of a trans child, like they need to hear more personal stories and they need to know how this is impacting their constituents. And the less they hear from us, the less they hear from our allies. And also to be very clear, we need our allies to leverage their privilege. It is time for people that align with what we need and they stand up with us and in front of SCOTUS, they're coming on meetings and all of those things. They need to leverage their privilege to make sure that we can get ahead. 
Mm. Can you say just a little bit more about that interaction that you have with your family? Because I think that's getting at something really important. And I am beginning to be in the of the school of people are not convinced by facts anymore. Facts have mm-hmm. lost their cachet, unfortunately, uh, because mm-hmm. facts are. Um, but I do think people can still be uh, persuaded by people and people to people. And um, so tell me a little bit about how it feels to be in those conversations, because you are, you're talking right with people who are um, struggling to, to understand. And one of the things I always try to remind our listeners and, and, our, and all of us is that we've all had our minds changed. None of us were born like, you know, knowing everything. We, we've all been able to grow. And so we, ha- we can't discount the idea that people can change and grow. It's a question of like, what are the, what are the ways that we can invite um, ourselves and others into growing mode rather than defensive mode. And I can imagine if you're talking to family members who are really coming up against some strong questions that challenge you as a person in your own personhood, it's hard to interact. I'm just, if you're willing to share a little bit about yes, of some course. of those stories and, and what, what you've seen in that person to person way that things can maybe change. Well, I will say this, it is not easy, Paul. Um, one of my, you know, elder family members, they listened to a hearing about a month ago about gender affirming care. And they called me all in a uproar, just saying like, you know, I support you. We don't have no problems with you, but I'm just not understanding why do we need to make sure that people can have gender affirming care. And they made a reference to their monthly cycle and saying how this is what I've been going through for 70 something years and blah, blah, blah. And no one is going to take that from me. And I had to educate them and let them know that, do you also know that there's intersex people? They didn't even know what an intersex person was. So I had to break down what intersex people go through and how someone that may have been born a cisgendered woman Yes, you may have a menstrual cycle, but there may be an intersex person that has a menstrual cycle as well. There may be someone that is trans that, that, that has a menstrual cycle that still has to go through those same problems and need the government to in- ensure care for them. And it was very different for me to educate a elder person in my family because as a black person, we're raised to just sit back and shut up. You know, whenever Mm -hmm. someone older says something, you don't jump in and say anything, but it really opened up their eyes to say, I had never thought about it that way. You know, even, even just with people that were born with certain, um, with, well, they were born into these ways of thinking, kind of like me. Like I was born into a radical Christian belief that I was going to hell and that everything that I do had a, you know, a response that was not going to be positive. And so figuring out ways to dial that back and to really be the agent of change in my family to have those types of, you know, conversation, it is a, it is a work in progress. Um, but a lot of times they're getting their information from the news cycles. They're listening to these hearings and they're seeing these members of Congress spew hate and disinformation and they call and they'll ask me like, what are they talking about? Why is this a problem? And it's just, it's hard because you also have to have a willing participant that is willing right. to dial back those thought processes and that's willing to have an open mind. If they don't well, have an open I, mind, then they'll stay there. 
Well, and I, I, I think it's, um, well, first of all, congratulations to you and to your elder that you were, that she said, I want to talk to you. That means that you created channels that were open. And I think that that's one of our opportunities is to say, listen, there are other people who are translating all of this stuff for people and, and they're trying to steer them in a way that, you know, that is, that can be hurtful for trans people and, and for LGBT people. Uh, we want to be those people who other people can turn to and say, translate this for me. Help me understand this. Humanize this moment for me. And I think that that is just the reason I, I think that the the work that, Alan, you're doing and the work, John, that you're doing. I mean, I, I'm, I, there is something about the, you know, being within the Jewish community, I do feel like there's broad consensus, but it doesn't mean it's all uniform and it's, and there, there's, um, you know, there's still opportunity for growth on all kinds of, uh, in all kinds of areas. Uh, but I, I do think that, that what you've just outlined, Alan, is so important for us to remember. We'll be back to continue our discussion with Alan Morris, policy advisor at the National LGBTQ Task Force, Keshet Director of Community Mobilization John Cohen, and Darcy Hirsch, Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance, coming right up. And later, the tireless organizer behind Jutina Eco. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Welcome back to State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. How can we as organizations also keep channels open? I have been in rooms where I've said to um, I've said to other organizations, I know you're not with us on LGBT things, I, you know, and I kind of just assumed something about this organization and what their priorities were and how they were going to react to the fact that Interfaith Alliance takes reproductive rights seriously in LGBT issues. And, and they said, don't assume anything about what we think about those things. You're shutting off our ability to have our own conversations. We can all grow, and we, we're, we're having those active conversations right now. John, going forward, can you just talk a little bit about what Keshet views as like the immediate priority for all of, you know, you have these area, three areas. What's the intersecting through line for this next period? And one of the things I like to invite everyone is how do we give hope to the people? How do we like, how do we offer hope? And so as part of your answer, like what are you doing that inspires hope for us, <laughs> for our listeners, but also for the Jewish and queer community that really needs some hope right now? The hope that I continue to hold on to is that history 
has been repeating itself and will continue to repeat itself where we look back and are shocked that we were having civil rights debates, women's ability to vote debates, gay marriage. And I know that in the future, we will look back at the debate currently happening about trans healthcare and bodily autonomy, and we will be shocked that it was happening. And so the hope for me is that this is a dark time and we have survived dark times in the past and have always come out on the other end. Trans people mm. and queer people have existed for the entirety that humanity has existed and will continue to exist for the entirety that humanity exists. And so mm. my hope is just knowing that we're not going anywhere and that we have each other. The through line for me is really just the coalitions that we continue to build, meeting and working with Alan, meeting and working with Darcy, the other organizations and incredible people that show up on the Hill. I am inspired every single day by the brilliance of these colleagues that have chosen to spend their working lives working for other people and for the rights of other people. And Paul, you said at the beginning that there is an, an amount of self-preservation in being a queer person fighting for queer rights. And that is another piece of it. And I think that it goes a little bit even beyond that, where I don't just want to self-preserve. I want to thrive. I want to be living my best life. And I don't want being queer or being Jewish or being trans or being any kind of identity to be something that is preventing anyone from living their best life. Mm -hmm. And so the hope and the through line is that we all deserve to thrive. And one person thriving does not mean somebody else doesn't get to thrive. And it really is possible for all of us to be living our best lives. Mm. I love that. Darcy, uh, you know, I, I, I ask you this all the time, but our, our listeners don't always get to hear it. What are some, what's a through line for you right now for Interfaith Alliance, for all the coalitions we're part of? And also, how do you, how do you see hope right now? I see hope. And I, I just have to say what John said was just so beautiful. And, and thank you, John, for, for sharing that. I, I see hope in all of us working together. I, I keep, hearing from people saying what a terrible time and i said well at least the best thing about this time is that we are here together with hope working together to make a change um and you know the through line is really being able to have open conversations to have advocates to have people waiting in the wings who want to speak out who are ready to advocate um I just, you know, thinking about what we're dealing with as far as the, the federal budget, which, of course, this is being replicated all around the country. There were over 500 anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ bills on the state level last session in state legislatures, and I'm sure we're going to see it again. So this is all building our muscle, teaching mm -hmm. us how to talk about these issues, how to have conversations and, and, and leading us to continued advocacy, critical advocacy moving forward. But I have to say, you know, Alan and I were were on the Hill last week meeting with a, a member of Congress's staff. We walked into the office. There was a daily devotional uh, book open, opened up next to the, the sign in sheet for everyone to see. So everybody could could read the daily devotional. And we walk in and then there were pride flags sitting on sitting on the the the, the front desk. 
And then we walked in and we started having our meeting and we said, you know, we we would really uh, love love your boss's support on the Equality Act, which would bring critical equality protections to the LGBTQ community and others. And the staffer said, oh, well, we 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 love the LGBTQ community, but we can't endorse that bill because the faith community would be upset. And I said, well, actually, I'm here on behalf of the faith community and, and we believe that we should not use our faith as a sword to discriminate against the LGBTQ community. And why don't you tell me what the concerns are and we can work them out and let's discuss them. And they they were so taken aback that they couldn't even answer the question. But that, that gives me hope. There is a presumption that the faith community is opposed to equality and we can get out there and say no we're not um and so i you know that really opened the door for a continued conversation with this office and it's an example of what dialogue where dialogue can get you um and just gives me hope that we should all be reaching out and having those conversations and and and, and flipping the, the presumption i've been so proud to work together with Kesha and the task force on advocating for lgbtq equality and we have actually launched a letter, a national faith sign-on letter to congressional leaders urging them to pass a budget now and to pass a budget that does not include any anti-LGBTQ amendments. And we have over 50 faith-based organizations from all around the country who've signed on to our letter, which is really, really incredible. And there's actually something that you can do that the listeners can do as well. Interfaith Alliance has an action alert on our website where you can go visit at www.interfaithalliance.org and you can sign a letter to your member of Congress urging your member to pass a clean budget that doesn't discriminate against the LGBTQ community. Mm, that's so helpful. Thank you. All right, Alan, bring us home. What, what's a through line and what's some, what's some hope that, that you have right now? My hope is I know that we can do this, right? This is a marathon. It's, it's not a sprint, right? It's going to take some work. It's going to take solidarity and it's going to take the mass movements to really come to the forefront and say, we're in it and we're not going anywhere. You know, when my, you know, ancestors were going through the Jim Crow era, you know, we didn't, they didn't know what was going to happen in the next 10 years. They didn't know what was going to happen in the next 20 years. And look where, where we are now, where there's liberation for all, you know what I'm saying? Um, and when I see this movement, you know, I'm very empowered by my colleagues that are here with me. You know, I, I feel so much, you know, soulless knowing that we do also have members in Congress that are willing to go there. But un unfortunately, it's just not enough. So I need people that are listening to understand that when when 2024 comes around and we start figuring out what are our key voting issues, this needs to be one of them. What are the main issues that are going to impact me daily? How can I make sure that my child or my you know, coworker or my friend or just just a family member or someone that I care for that is with that that falls in this demographic are not having to deal with hate. What can I do to ensure that that is not you know happening to them? It is by voting out the people that are in Congress right now and that are trying to attack us at every front. Also, I have hope in just knowing that this this current generation, the Gen Zers. They're not going to play that. 
You know, they are standing <laughs> up and they are doing what they need to do. And it, and it's going to take a lot of time for people like myself. I am a millennial and I still have to educate even my own generation on what's going on. But this new generation, they're the future. And if we don't set them up for greatness, that's a failure on everyone's part, not just on us, but it's, it, it is on everyone. It is also a failure on the legislators part who hold the seats right here in this office behind us. Like it is very important for us to understand that what we do now has a lasting impact. For example, with the legislations that have been passed this year, it's going to take us 10 years to roll those back. So when we think about the, the long haul journey of what it's going to look like, we can do it, but we need everyone to invest and to say, yes, I will stand with you. And I know that we will achieve not just the impossible, but also the the impractical. Mm, mm. And I love what you say about Gen Z. I, I, I have to say, like, they have very little tolerance for even this discussion. They're just like, why are we talking about this? Like, it shouldn't you know, be I mean, an I, issue. I, you know, this is not, I mean, my nieces and nephews are just like, oh, that, you know, they grew up with me, you know, with me being married and all this. And they're just like mystified. And on the transit, they're they're completely there. There's This is not a debate for them. And, but. You're absolutely right. Like we need to make sure that 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 perspective, which is overwhelming in the younger, younger dinner demographic, becomes a reality because right now it's not a reality. And mm -hmm. so I think that and, and setting them up for leadership and all of that, it's so great. Darcy Hirsch is Senior Director of Policy and Advocacy at Interfaith Alliance. Follow our work at interfaithalliance.org. Alan Morris is policy advisor at the National LGBTQ Task Force at www.thetaskforce.org. And John Cohen is director of community mobilization at Keshet at www.keshetonline.org. That's K-E-S-H-E-T online.org. Thank you all for being with us here on The State of Belief. Thank you so Thank much. You. Thank you all. Anti-diversity forces have tried really hard to make intersectionality a dirty word, but it didn't work because we all know that strengths in numbers is a thing and finding common ground across diverse identities we each live is a key to building power coalitions and movements. I recently got to know an inspiring woman and activist who is really making this work among people of Latinx and Jewish identity. Ana Lucia Lopez Reveredo is founder and executive director of Jutina Ico. And I just knew I had to have her on the show. And so, Ana Lucia, welcome to State of Belief. Thank you so much, Paul. It's great to be here. So tell me about Jutina. This is a great name. Immediately, I'm like, okay, I need to know more. What's the genesis of it? What need is it filling? And, and how did you have the guts just to say, I'm, I'm stepping in? Yes, thank you. So Jutina is a portmanteau. It's a word that combines two identities that, were really, that are really important to me, both being Jewish and Latina. And so growing up, I think oftentimes there was this desire to 
in a very intersectional but multicultural and in a way that can't be classified into as many little pieces of pie as possible come up with one thing and that was you know in my life I live and walk this world as a jutina someone informed by these two beautiful identities and cultures um, that are quite complementary to one another. And Jutina started uh, really at the end as I was sunsetting my time as a doctoral student. Uh, I had, during that time, was had also been working in the Jewish community for about four or five years and realized that my next step involved me taking a major leap of faith to address something that had been missing in the Jewish community for quite some time. And growing up in the United States as an immigrant from Latin America, uh, in a lot of Jewish spaces, I often was found, was, was met with a lot of disbelief or um, misunderstanding around Latin Jewry, Jews from Latin America, and the experience of people that hold that intersectional identity. And similarly, in a lot of Latin, Latinist spaces would also be met with a number of, a lot of questions and anti-Semitism around being Jewish in a predominantly Latin space where the majority of folks do identify if they're going to identify with a religion with Catholicism or, or some form of, of Christian belief. And so knowing that that was missing was really kind of the, was the genesis, was the, was the why and, and owing it to myself, my, what I say, my little Anita, Anita is like a nice, like it's a diminutive way of saying, you know, anyone with the name Anna. And for me, that was, I owed it to, to her. And so I said, we're going to do this. And Jutina Iko Today is a nonprofit organization that works to nurture Latin Jewish community, identity, leadership, and resiliency. Uh, and we do this so that we're serving not only the community Latin Jews of today, but really the Latin Jews of tomorrow. And because we sit at this incredible intersection of understanding the Latine and Jewish communities, we naturally serve as these bridges between two spaces, two communities that need a lot of relational repair and transformation. So it's an exciting time to be in this work. It's amazing. And I, I, I have, you know, I think within the Jewish community, it's, uh, it's an awareness, but it's also enriching to realize that, you know, th that it can continue to expand the idea of who counts as Jewish in America, especially. And I think that that is like really that that is across the board. That is, you know, that is, you know, this uh, part of the American transformation that's going on across religious, you know, not all Protestants are white or, or, or the black church. There's a lot of other people who are in that space. Same with the Catholic church and within the Jewish community and the Muslim community, there's actually like, uh, you know, from immigration from Latin America and from around the world is, is changing the way people understand who counts, who is Jewish. And I, that feels to me like a real enrichment of the Jewish space. Is, is that some of the way that you understand your work? That's entirely how we understand our work. We're really trying to unflatten the way in which communities in which we've been racialized in the ways in which we have been meant to uh, put people in certain boxes. Like you can only be Jewish if you have this experience or if you look this way or if you come, if your grandparents or ancestors came from a particular place. Similarly, uh, as you were just mentioning, folks across different denominations of Christianity were, will oftentimes be pegged with a particular movement because of their racial identity or where it was that a, a particular movement was born. But the reality is that in today's world, because of a number of different things we've been inspired we have been inspired as a people spiritually and so for folks and and i'll talk about jews it, primarily you know we have always been a multiracial 
multicultural global people. And so the idea that Jews can only come from an Eastern European uh, pre or post kind of Holocaust survival space is so far from historical reality. Uh, we know, for example, in Latin America, Jews have been have, have had a presence there for as a Jew, as a as a community with with an actual community. I'm not talking about the Inquisition for about for about 200 years, and with that has come a lot of intermarriage. Has come a lot. There's been inspiration drawn from different local communities, and this has happened everywhere. And I can only imagine that the same is for different movements. We see this with Islam. We see this with Christianity in different parts of the world. To think that you can only be one racial identity with one particular spiritual movement is so far from human reality. And, and yeah. that is 100% what we're trying to to bring that consciousness to our communities. Well, and it's also like, you know, this is this is key to America growing as a nation, that we stop being so strict about the racial like who's who, the racial history that counts in this country and and be, begin to be expansive about all these different richness that is coming you know fortunately to our country and i'm just curious how how has this gone for you i mean you know i mean i are are there stories that you know moments where you were just like ah that's the reason i did this i mean it's hard to start an organization and it's hard to start an awareness campaign but are there moments where you can point to and say, ah, that's the reason I did this. Like that is a success story that I can, that, that, that will um, sustain me uh, through the next uh, period. Yeah. I, I think especially when it comes to the Jewish community in the United States, we have become, and it's funny because I, I speak as a, as a Jew. And yet I understand that a lot of my fellow Jews in this space that in this country that I grew up in have a very small understanding of the ethno-racial experience of Jews around the world. And for me, it's it really became a, a mission to have our community really be able to take ownership of kind of the ways in which they have flattened their own identity, but also moved Judaism or moved, moved Jewish identity into the whiteness space, right? Jews mm. have really benefited in the United States because the majority of the population of Jews in the United States have a proximity to whiteness that has made them falsely believe that when it comes to Judaism around the world, it's really, it becomes centric to American Judaism as well as like Israel Judaism, right? Those are like the ways in which North American and, you know, Israeli experiences. And so that oftentimes happens with when it comes to white supremacy culture, because we start to really minimize our questions around what's actually happening in different parts of the world. And for us, it's been so imperative to be able to, through our work, um, through elevating consciousness around Latin Jewelry, awaken a curiosity that's not just about Latin Jewelry, that it doesn't stop there. So some of the most exciting moments have been when I've had conversations with folks around how an event that they went to or a program that they were at where I was speaking or somebody in our community was speaking led them to want to understand other ways in which Jews are multicultural and other parts of the world in which Jews have called home and, and continue to call home. And that for me is a huge win, right? That it doesn't just stop at understanding 
the the nuance and the expansiveness of Latin jewelry that it's creating a continued curiosity beyond the space that they've been interacting with me or our organization. Yeah. Well, I just think, you know, when you begin to think of like, okay, what do I really know about Ethiopian Jews? You know I mean? And how can I actually like, how can that enrich what I understand about my, my tradition, my people? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I think it's just like, it's really a extraordinary and beautiful opportunity. I, on the other side, like, I think we often just like, if you say, okay, uh, from Latin America, they got to be Catholic, they got to be, you know, I mean, and, uh, uh, da, 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 da. and, you know, I, 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 I you know, often think back to in time when I was living in Brazil and, and I was living in this area that ha- was right next to this, um, uh, really amazing, um, a synagogue and I was seeing all these like Brazilian Jews and I was like oh that's like you know not what I thought I was going to be encountering in in uh, Brazil but there we are and and it was just really you know it's it's exciting but how how do you continue to talk into the Latin community and we're in uh, Latin Heritage Month and you know how does how did we make sure that stories about Latin history in this country yeah. are celebrated in all of their diversity and not point to just the ones that we're already familiar with thank you I actually want to answer that in two parts and I first I want to say thank you for for saying Latin Heritage Month I think uh, the United States has really tried to promote a term which is Hispanic Heritage Month and Hispanic Heritage Month um, you know, the word Hispanic really came during a time in the 70s in which the census was trying to understand a group of people that were not white, but were also not black and kind of fell in this space of of uh, cultural uh, reality or understanding patterns of living. And so Hispanic was created to denote people who were from, had a connection to Latin America. Now, the reason why we've been really adamant about using the term Latin or Latine or Latinx, depending on what feels more, when we actually use all of those terms at Jutina when we have time to explain them. Um, but reason why we are really pushing against the term Hispanic is actually three big reasons. One is that it excludes Brazil. And Brazil, as you just mentioned, is such a big part of Latin American history. It has a similar history of enslavement, of anti-indigeneity, of miscegenation, of Um, colonization, liberation, like all of these things that really unite us. And so to exclude Brazil is a choice and we don't, and we are choosing not to do that. And so why we really focus on Latin Heritage Month. Uh, Also, when it's, when you're using the word Hispanic, it really relates to Spanish speaking countries. Um, And so that would also include Equatorial Guinea and Africa. It would include Spain and that for us, like we're really, it's, it's a month about Latin America. So we don't, we don't, and I love Spain. I lived in Spain for two years. But in terms of historical, uh, what we're trying to do here, it separates it in a way that's very appropriate to really talk about this region. And not all Latina folks speak Spanish. So even if they come from a background of, of Spanish speakers, for a lot of reasons, they might not be Hispanic in terms of uh, it denotes language. And so aside from being also Portuguese speakers, there's people who weren't taught that language. And so it's important for us to really be as expansive as possible. And so we use the term Latin, Latine, which is the uh, more Latinized way of saying Latinx so that you can be Mm -hmm. pronounced. It's a gender neutral way. And so we really invite people to be thinking about how the terms that we use during this month have an impact on how we celebrate our histories. And when it comes to the second question, it's funny that you mentioned Brazil because Brazil has the second largest Jewish community in all of Latin America first being Argentina, then Brazil, then Mexico. Uh, And 
it's for me, like I, uh, when it comes to the Jewish community, there's the Latin Jewish community. There's in my way of thinking about it, there's kind of four main tracks as to how can identify one can identify as Latin and Jewish. One can be a Jew from Latin America, meaning their families were from a Jewish community in Latin America. Uh, and so they've got a really rich understanding of how Jewish community operates in Latin America. Two, they can come from a mixed background where one parent is Jewish, one parent is not Jewish. And so much of their life is spent navigating those two spaces. Three, they can be a transnational, transracial adoptee. This happened a lot in the 70s and 80s with a lot of things that were taking place in Latin America. And there was this big market, for lack of a better word, for adoption in Latin America. Um, and then lastly, it's folks who did not grow up Jewish, but now lead very rich Jewish lives. And so this is really the way in which we see folks within our community. And, and that's an important thing to note, because when it comes to the Latine identity, people oftentimes think it's as very, everyone has the same identity or the same way of, of being, expressing or living a Latino life. Uh, of course, that's highly impacted by where one lives. If you live in California, your perception of Latin community likely differs than if you're from Miami or if you're from New York. Uh, mm. And so I always ask people to think about the geography, how that informs the way they think. Um, but that that goes across for all, all of our community. Even within the Latin space, there's a lot of breaking of simple stereotypes that have been made about our community. And so for us, this our, our organization started during this time of year four years ago as a way to also not just lift up Latin Jewish stories in Jewish community, but also kind of like shake our Latin community and say, we are much more diverse than we think we mm -hmm. are. Um, and we need to be, we need to be paying attention to that because a lot of simple thinking um, or just kind of cutting corners in terms of like wanting to understand our massive regional community uh, is doing a disservice to who we actually are and, and not really lifting up as many diverse Latin stories as possible. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the opportunity here, again, is is all about enrichment. And, the, you know, he, more more human stories makes our human story more interesting. And um, and the more particular that we can get, the more um, texture and, and interesting, uh, you know, life becomes. So I think this is a really great work. Um, you know, one of the things I like to ask people uh, on this show is what gives you hope right now? And how does that connect with the work that you're doing? What gives me hope right now? I think at this moment in time, there is, I have noticed this more than anyone from younger folks, younger generations. Whenever I speak to groups of teens, uh, whenever I speak to folks in their early 20s, there is, younger folks have been taught to think about things more critically. And, and for folks, and I think this happens with every generation, I think there is a little bit of disdain towards younger generations, taking a new uh, approach to interpreting the way in which we've always lived our lives. But this is something that's happened every every single generation that comes. And I'm really leaning into what we can learn from younger folks and the way in which they disseminate information, the way how creative they are, how they um, call out things that feel disingenuous or feel as if they're not centered in equity. And I really do appreciate that more than anything. And so I'm, I, I have a lot of hope by just seeing what it is, the campaigns that younger folks are running. No longer do you have to be someone really far into your career to be able to be leading um, an important conversation. And so I think like the more that we can lean in and partner with younger folks, younger generations, that's giving me a lot of hope that we're able to break a lot of barriers that have existed from generation to generation and reach more people at a time in which they'll be able to make important shifts in their life 
like still young enough to make these shifts to be able to course correct a lot of inequity in the world. Yeah, it, it is uh, amazing. I think it's a testimony to the wonderful people I have on this show that um, the the people on this show always point towards the younger generation <laughs> as being hopeful, and I just love that because you know the the cr- there is nothing less attractive than the cranky old person who's like, "Wow, we in a way we did it." And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's like you know give give. There's young energy, and they are like they're in it, and I'm so excited by um, by that work, and I'm so excited by all that you're doing and congratulations. This is uh, amazing you. work. I'm so glad to have you on the show and, and not for the last time. We are no. just beginning conversations with Jutina. Thank you so Ana much, Lucia Lopez-Reveredo is founder and executive director of Jutina Eco, nurturing Latin Jewish community, identity, leadership, and resiliency via cohort experiences, community storytelling, culturally sustaining learning resources, and workshops, as well as live connection points. Ana Lucia, so great to have you on the, today's State of Belief. Thank you so much, Paul. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and more people taking part both on and off the air. And join the conversation. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I'll be in conversation with Christian ethicist David Gushy, who has just published his latest book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.